Chapter Nineteen, Part Two, of the Wrecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wrecker, by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Nineteen, Part Two. It could be said of him that he had learned in sorrow what he taught in song or wrong, and his life was that of one of his victims. He was born in the back parts of the state of New York, his father a farmer, who became subsequently bankrupt and went west. The lawyer and money-lender who had ruined this poor family seems to have conceived in the end a feeling of remorse. He turned the father out indeed, but he offered in compensation to charge himself with one of the sons, and Harry, the fifth child, and already sickly, was chosen to be left behind. He made himself useful in the office, picked up the scattered rudiments of an education, read right and left, attended and debated at the Young Men's Christian Association, and in all his early years was the model for a good story-book. His landlady's daughter was his bane. He showed me her photograph. She was a big, handsome, dashing, dressy, vulgar hussy, without character, without tenderness, without mind, and, as the result proved, without virtue. The sickly and timid boy was in the house. He was handy. When she was otherwise unoccupied, she used and played with him, Romeo and Cressida, till in that dreary life of a poor boy in a country town she grew to be the light of his days, and the subject of his dreams. He worked hard, like Jacob, for a wife. He surpassed his patron in sharp practice. He was made head clerk and the same night, encouraged by a hundred freedoms, depressed by the sense of his youth and his infirmities, he offered marriage, and was received with laughter. Not a year had passed before his master, conscious of growing infirmities, took him for a partner. He proposed again. He was accepted. Led two years of troubled married life, and awoke one morning to find his wife had run away with a dashing drummer, and had left him heavily in debt. The debt, and not the drummer, was supposed to be the cause of the hegira. She had concealed her liabilities. They were on the point of bursting forth. She was weary of Belair's. And she took the drummer as she might have taken a cab. The blow disabled her husband. His partner was dead. He was now alone in the business, for which he was no longer fit. The debts hampered him. Bankruptcy followed, and he fled from city to city, falling daily into lower practice. It is to be considered that he had been taught, and had learned as a delightful duty, a kind of business whose highest merit is to escape the commentaries of the bench, that of the usurious lawyer in a county town. With this training he was now shot, a penniless stranger, into the deeper gulfs of cities, and the result is scarce a thing to be surprised at. "'Have you heard of your wife again?' I asked. He displayed a pitiful agitation. "'I am afraid you will think ill of me,' he said. "'Have you taken her back?' I asked. "'No, sir. I trust I have too much self-respect,' he answered. "'And at least I was never tempted. She won't come. She dislikes me. She seems to have conceived a positive distaste for me. And yet I was considered an indulgent husband.' "'You are still in relations, then?' I asked. "'I place myself in your hands, Mr. Dodd,' he replied. "'The world is very hard.' I have found it bitter hard myself, bitter hard to live. How much worse for a woman, 
and one who has placed herself, by her own misconduct, I am far from denying that, in so unfortunate a position. In short, you support her, I suggested? I cannot deny it. I practically do, he admitted. It has been a millstone round my neck, but I think she is grateful. You can see for yourself. He handed me a letter in a sprawling, ignorant hand, but written with violet ink on fine pink paper with a monogram. It was very foolishly expressed, and I thought, except for a few obvious cajoleries, very heartless and greedy in meaning. The writer said she had been sick, which I disbelieved, declared the last remittance was all gone in doctor's bills, for which I took the liberty of substituting dress, drink, and monograms, and prayed for an increase which I could only hope had been denied her. "'I think she is really grateful?' he asked, with some eagerness, as I returned it. "'I dare say,' said I. "'Has she any claim on you?' "'Oh, no, sir. I divorced her,' he replied. I have a very strong sense of self-respect in such matters, and I divorced her immediately. "'What sort of life is she leading now?' I asked. "'I will not deceive you, Mr. Dodd. I do not know. I make a point of not knowing. It appears more dignified. I have been very harshly criticized,' he added, sighing. It will be seen that I had fallen into an ignominious intimacy with the man I had gone out to thwart. My pity for the creature, his admiration for myself, his pleasure in my society, which was clearly unassumed, were the bonds with which I was fettered. Perhaps I should add, in honesty, my own ill-regulated interest in the phases of life and human character. The fact is, at least, that we spent hours together daily, and that I was nearly as much on the forward deck as in the saloon. Yet all the while I could never forget he was a shabby trickster embarked that very moment in a dirty enterprise. I used to tell myself at first that our acquaintance was a stroke of art, and that I was somehow fortifying Carthew. I told myself, I say, but I was no such fool as to believe it, even then. In these circumstances I displayed the two chief qualities of my character on the largest scale—my helplessness and my instinctive love of procrastination and fell upon a course of action so ridiculous that I blush when I recall it. We reached Liverpool one forenoon, the rain falling thickly and insidiously on the filthy town. I had no plans beyond a sensible unwillingness to let my rascal escape, and I ended by going to the same inn with him, dining with him, walking with him in the wet streets, and hearing with him in a penny gaff that venerable piece, The Ticket of Leave Man. It was one of his first visits to a theatre, against which places of entertainment he had a strong prejudice, and his innocent pompous talk, innocent old quotations, and innocent reverence for the character of Hawkshaw delighted me beyond relief. In charity to myself I dwell upon and perhaps exaggerate my pleasures. I have need of all conceivable excuses, when I confess that I went to bed without one word upon the matter of Carthew, but not without having covenanted with my rascal for a visit to Chester the next day. At Chester we did the cathedral, walked on the walls, discussed Shakespeare and the musical glasses, and made a fresh engagement for the morrow. I do not know, and I am glad to have forgotten, how long these travels were continued. We visited, at least by singular zigzags, Stratford, Warwick, Coventry, Gloucester, Bristol, Bath, and Wells. At each stage we spoke dutifully of the scene and its associations. I sketched, 
The shyster spouted poetry and copied epitaphs. Who could doubt we were the usual Americans, travelling with a design of self-improvement? Who was to guess that one was a blackmailer, trembling to approach the scene of action, the other a helpless amateur detective, waiting on events? It is unnecessary to remark that none occurred, or none the least suitable for my design of protecting Carthew. Two trifles, indeed, completed, though they scarcely changed my conception of the shyster. The first was observed in Gloucester, where we spent Sunday, and I proposed we should hear service in the cathedral. To my surprise, the creature had an ism of his own, to which he was loyal, and he left me to go alone to the cathedral, or perhaps not to go at all, and stole off down a deserted alley to some Bethel or Ebenezer of the proper shade. When we met again at lunch, I rallied him, and he grew restive. "'You need employ no circumlocutions with me, Mr. Dodd,' he said suddenly. "'You regard my behaviour from an unfavourable point of view. You regard me, I much fear, as hypocritical.' I was somewhat confused by the attack. "'You know what I think of your trade,' I replied, lamely and coarsely. "'Excuse me if I seem to press the subject,' he continued. "'But if you think my life erroneous—' Would you have me neglect the means of grace? Because you consider me in the wrong on one point, would you have me place myself on the wrong in all? Surely, sir, the church is for the sinner." "'Did you ask a blessing on your present enterprise?' I sneered. He had a bad attack of St. Vitus. His face was changed, and his eyes flashed. "'I will tell you what I did,' he cried. "'I prayed for an unfortunate man and a wretched woman whom he tries to support. I cannot pretend that I found any repartee. The second incident was at Bristol, where I lost sight of my gentleman some hours. From this eclipse he returned to me with thick speech, wandering footsteps, and a back all whitened with plaster. I had half expected, yet I could have wept to see it. All disabilities were piled on that weak back. Domestic misfortune, nervous disease, a displeasing exterior, empty pockets, and the slavery of vice. I will never deny that our prolonged conjunction was the result of double cowardice. Each was afraid to leave the other. Each was afraid to speak, or knew not what to say. Save for my ill-judged illusion at Gloucester, the subject uppermost in both our minds was buried. Carthew, Stalbridge le Carthew, Stalbridge Minster, which we had long since, and severally, identified to be the nearest station, even the name of Dorsetshire, was studiously avoided and yet we were making progress all the time, tacking across broad England like an unweatherly vessel on a wind, approaching our destination not openly but by a sort of flying sap, and at length, I can scarce tell how, we were set down by a dilatory butt-end of local train on the untenanted platform of Stalbridge Minster. The town was ancient and compact, a domino of tiled houses and walled gardens, dwarfed by the disproportionate bigness of the church. From the midst of the thoroughfare which divided it in half, fields and trees were visible at either end, and through the sally-port of every street there flowed in from the country a silent invasion of green grass. Bees and birds appeared to make the majority of the inhabitants. Every garden had its row of hives, the eaves of every house were plastered with the nests of swallows, and the pinnacles of the church were flickered about all day long by a multitude of wings. The town was of Roman foundation. 
and as I looked out that afternoon from the low windows of the inn, I should scarce have been surprised to see a centurion coming up the street with a fatigue draught of legionaries. In short, Stalbridge Minster was one of those towns which appear to be maintained by England for the instruction and delight of the American rambler, to which he seems guided by an instinct not less surprising than the setters, and which he visits and quits with equal enthusiasm. I was not at all in the humour of the tourist. I had wasted weeks of time and accomplished nothing. We were on the eve of the engagement, and I had neither plans nor allies. I had thrust myself into the trade of private providence and amateur detective. I was spending money, and I was reaping disgrace. All the time I kept telling myself that I must at least speak, that this ignominious silence should have been broken long ago, and must be broken now. I should have broken it when he first proposed to come to Stalbridge Minster. I should have broken it in the train. I should break it there and then, on the inn doorstep, as the omnibus rolled off. I turned toward him at the thought. He seemed to wince, the words died on my lips, and I proposed instead that we should visit the Minster. While we were engaged upon this duty, it came on to rain in a manner worthy of the tropics. The vault reverberated, every gargoyle instantly poured its full discharge. We waded back to the inn, ankle-deep in impromptu brooks, and the rest of the afternoon sat weather-bound, hearkening to the sonorous deluge. For two hours I talked of indifferent matters, laboriously feeding the conversation. For two hours my mind was quite made up to do my duty instantly, and at each particular instant I postponed it till the next. To screw up my faltering courage, I called at dinner for some sparkling wine. It proved when it came to be detestable. I could not put it to my lips, and Bellairs, who had as much palate as a weevil, was left to finish it himself. Doubtless the wine flushed him. Doubtless he may have observed my embarrassment of the afternoon. Doubtless he was conscious that we were approaching a crisis, and that that evening, if I did not join with him, I must declare myself an open enemy. At least he fled. Dinner was done. This was the time when I had bound myself to break my silence. No more delays were to be allowed. No more excuses received. I went upstairs after some tobacco, which I felt to be a mere necessity in the circumstances. And when I returned, the man was gone. The waiter told me he had left the house. The rain still plumped, like a vast shower-bath over the deserted town. The night was dark and windless, the street lit glimmeringly from end to end, lamps, house-windows, and the reflections in the rain-pools all contributing. From a public-house on the other side of the way I heard a harp twang, and a doleful voice upraised in the larboard watch, the anchors weighed, and other naval ditties. Where had my shyster wandered? in all likelihood to that lyrical tavern. There was no choice of diversion. In comparison with Stalbridge Minster on a rainy night, a sheepfold would seem gay. Again I passed in review the points of my interview, on which I was always constantly resolved so long as my adversary was absent from the scene. And again they struck me as inadequate. From this dispiriting exercise I turned to the native amusements of the inn coffee-room and studied for some time the mezzotints that frowned upon the wall. The railway guide, after showing me how soon I could leave Stalbridge, and how quickly I could reach Paris, failed to hold my attention. An illustrated advertisement book of hotels brought me very low indeed, and when it came to the local paper 
I could have wept. At this point I found a passing solace in a copy of Whittaker's Almanac, and obtained in fifty minutes more information than I have yet been able to use. Then a fresh apprehension assailed me. Suppose Bellairs had given me the slip. Suppose he was now rolling on the road to stalbridge le Carthew, or perhaps there, already, and laying before a very white-faced auditor his threats and propositions. A hasty person might have instantly pursued. Whatever I am, I am not hasty, and I was aware of three grave objections. In the first place, I could not be certain that Bellairs was gone. In the second, I had no taste whatever for a long drive at that hour of the night, and in so merciless a rain. In the third, I had no idea how I was to get admitted if I went, and no idea what I should say if I got admitted. In short, I concluded, the whole situation is the merest farce. You have thrust yourself in where you had no business and have no power. You would be quite as useful in San Francisco, far happier in Paris, and being, by the wrath of God, at Stalbridge Minster, the wisest thing is to go quietly to bed. On the way to my room I saw, in a flash, that which I ought to have done long ago, and which it was now too late to think of. Written to Carthew, I mean, detailing the facts and describing Bellairs, letting him defend himself if he were able, and giving him time to flee if he were not. It was the last blow to my self-respect, and I flung myself into my bed with contumely. I have no guess what hour it was when I was wakened by the entrance of Bellairs carrying a candle. He had been drunk, for he was debobbed with mire from head to foot. But he was now sober, and under the empire of some violent emotion, which he controlled with difficulty. He trembled visibly, and more than once during the interview which followed, tears suddenly and silently overflowed his cheeks. "'I have to ask your pardon, sir, for this untimely visit,' he said. "'I make no defence. I have no excuse. I have disgraced myself. I am properly punished. I appear before you to appeal to you in mercy for the most trifling aid, or, God help me, I fear I may go mad.' "'What on earth is wrong?' I asked. "'I have been robbed,' he said. "'I have no defence to offer. It was of my own fault I am properly punished.' "'But gracious goodness me!' I cried. "'Who is there to rob you in a place like this?' "'I can form no opinion,' he replied. "'I have no idea. I was lying in a ditch, inanimate. This is a degrading confession, sir.' I can only say in self-defence that perhaps, in your good nature, you have made yourself partly responsible for my shame. I am not used to these rich wines. "'In what form was your money? Perhaps it may be traced,' I suggested. "'It was in English sovereigns. I changed it in New York. I got very good exchange,' he said, and then with a momentary outbreak, "'God in heaven! How I toiled for it!' he cried. "'That doesn't sound encouraging,' said I. It may be worth while to apply to the police, but it doesn't sound a hopeful case." "'And I have no hope in that direction,' said Bellairs. "'My hopes, Mr. Dodd, are all fixed upon yourself. I could easily convince you that a small, a very small advance, would be in the nature of an excellent investment. But I prefer to rely on your humanity. Our acquaintance began on an unusual footing. But you have now known me for some time. We have been some time. I was going to say we had been almost intimate. Under the impulse of instinctive sympathy, I have bared my heart to you, Mr. Dodd, as I have done to few, and I believe, I trust, I may say that I feel sure, you heard me with a kindly sentiment. 
This is what brings me to your side at this most inexcusable hour. But put yourself in my place. How could I sleep? How could I dream of sleeping, in this blackness of remorse and despair? There was a friend at hand, so I ventured to think of you. It was instinctive. I fled to your side as the drowning man clutches at a straw. These expressions are not exaggerated. They scarcely serve to express the agitation of my mind. And think, sir, how easily you can restore me to hope, and, I may say, to reason. A small loan, which shall be faithfully repaid. Five hundred dollars would be ample. He watched me with burning eyes. Four hundred would do. I believe, Mr. Dodd, that I could manage with economy on two. And then you will repay me out of Carthew's pocket, I said. I am much obliged, but I will tell you what I will do. I will see you on board a steamer, pay your fare through to San Francisco, and place fifty dollars in the purser's hands to be given you in New York." He drank in my words. His face represented an ecstasy of cunning thought. I could read there, plain as print, that he but thought to overreach me. "'And what am I to do in Frisco?' he asked. "'I am disbarred. I have no trade. I cannot dig. To beg.' he paused in the citation, and you know that I am not alone, he added. Others depend upon me. I will write to Pinkerton, I returned. I feel sure he can help you to some employment, and in the meantime, and for three months after your arrival, he shall pay to yourself personally, on the first and fifteenth, twenty-five dollars. Mr. Dodd, I scarce believe you can be serious in this offer, he replied. Have you forgotten the circumstances of the case? Do you know these people are the magnates of the section? They were spoken of to-night in the saloon. Their wealth must amount to many millions of dollars in real estate alone. Their house is one of the sites of the locality, and you offer me a bribe of a few hundred? I offer you no bribe, Mr. Bellairs. I give you alms, I returned. I will do nothing to forward you in your hateful business, yet I would not willingly have you starve. Give me a hundred dollars, then, and be done with it, he cried. I will do what I have said, and neither more nor less," said I. "'Take care!' he cried. "'You are playing a fool's game. You are making an enemy for nothing. You will gain nothing by this, I warn you of it.' And then, with one of his changes, seventy dollars, only seventy! In mercy, Mr. Dodd, in common charity, don't dash the bowl from my lips. You have a kindly heart. Think of my position. Remember my unhappy wife. "'You should have thought of her before,' said I. "'I have made my offer, and I wish to sleep. "'Is that your last word, sir? "'Pray consider. "'Pray weigh both sides. "'My misery, your own danger. "'I warn you, I beseech you, "'measure it well before you answer.' "'So he half pleaded, half threatened me, "'with clasped hands. "'My first word, and my last,' said I. "'The change upon the man was shocking. "'In the storm of anger that now shook him, the lees of his intoxication rose again to the surface. His face was deformed, his words insane with fury, his pantomime excessive in itself was distorted by an access of St. Vitus. "'You will perhaps allow me to inform you of my cold opinion,' he began, apparently self-possessed, truly bursting with rage. "'When I am a glorified saint, I shall see you howling for a drop of water, and exult to see you. That your last word!' Take it in your face, you spy, you false friend, you fat hypocrite. I defy, I defy and despise and spit upon you. I'm on the trail, his trail or yours. I smell blood. 
I'll follow it on my hands and knees. I'll starve to follow it. I'll hunt you down, hunt you, hunt you down. If I were strong, I'd tear your vitals out, here in this room. Tear them out. I'd tear them out. Damn, damn, damn. You think me weak. I can bite, bite to the blood, bite you, hurt you, disgrace you. He was thus incoherently raging, when the scene was interrupted by the arrival of the landlord and inn-servants in various degrees of dishabille, and to them I gave my temporary lunatic in charge. "'Take him to his room,' I said. "'He's only drunk.' These were my words, but I knew better. After all my study of Mr. Bellairs, one discovery had been reserved for the last moment—that of his latent and essential madness. End of chapter 19, part 2